All right, here we go. So we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to do a little uh, review because we're right in the middle. We'll start at verse 29 tonight and finish 15, maybe preview 16. We'll do 16 next week, and then we'll start 2 Corinthians. And then, uh, so that's the 7th. We'll start, uh, no, we'll start 2 Corinthians on the 14th. And then on the 21st, Marcus Doe is going to be here. He's the pastor from uh, Redemption Tucson. He's got an amazing story. And he's also, if you notice on the, um, the newsletter, the monthly newsletter, if you get it in an email, there's a link to his TEDx talk. And you can watch that and get a little bit of background on him there. He has a TEDx talk. Uh, but we're specifically going to be talking about... We'll, we'll get his story and his background. Um, his parents were killed in a civil war in Africa when he was 11. And uh, so he has an interesting story of forgiveness, but he also has a, a ministry, a ministry that he's starting called We Reconcile, where he's reconciling um, young fatherless men with their biological father, but doing it in a really healthy way very interesting stuff. So I thought I'd give Arcadia a little taste of what he's doing down there in that area of Arizona that somehow, as far as ASU is concerned, is part of Mexico. So <laughs> anyway, um, so that'll be the 21st, and then we'll take back off onto 2 Corinthians. So Paul says that what he's writing about in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. And... <clears throat> What follows that is him saying that Christ died for our sins, was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, and then on the third day he was raised, and then he appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to the 500, and then he also appeared to one who was untimely born, which is Paul. But that thing that's of first importance, really what he's narrowing, it's, uh, the gospel is of first importance, but really what he's narrowing in on is the resurrection. The resurrection is of first importance because the rest of the chapter is about the resurrection and how everything falls apart without the resurrection. Did anybody in this room ever play the game Jenga? Okay. Yeah, right. So you, you know how, it, were you ever the one that pulled out the one, finally pulled out the one block and everything came tumbling down? That, the resurrection is that block in the gospel if you pull that one out and that's why so many people want to disprove the resurrection because they could they believe they could take out all of christianity for that but you get that one block pulled out paul says everything falls apart and in that big third paragraph he says without the resurrection four things if there's no resurrection we are misrepresenting god we are false witnesses and false teachers if there's no resurrection. Second thing he says is we are still in our sins if there's no resurrection. Third thing he says is all there is is this miserable world. Now I'm paraphrasing there, but that's what he's saying. All there is is this miserable world. And then the fourth thing is if there's no resurrection, we are to be pitied more than all. More than anybody else who's living, we are to be pitied. 
And I mentioned how that word pity means uh, we are the most miserable people. Okay? But because the resurrection is true, when we testify to Jesus, we are testifying to the true faith. We're not misrepresenting God. Since the resurrection is true, rather than still being in our sins, we are righteous, redeemed, and justified, and we stand in full justification before God because of Christ's resurrection. Uh, The third thing is there isn't just this miserable, chaotic, dark, sinful world, but rather Paul says, uh, and he says this in 2 Corinthians, and we'll get it to it, he says what we experience in this world is actually light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that is to come. So if you think about how challenging it is in this world, Paul says it's really just light momentary affliction. That's it. And then the fourth one, since the resurrection is true, we have joy, we have favor, we have blessing, as opposed to being pity more than all. Uh, That's a really interesting synopsis, I think, of, of what Paul is saying to us. So, talks about the resurrection its importance, and then he begins to talk about it in terms of the end times as well. So there's some end times teaching here. Uh, But then in verses 29 through 35, he goes into this baptism of the dead thing, which is interesting. Anybody want to take that on and explain that fully and capably for everybody? Okay. So here we go, 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he's, again, at his rhetorical best, his argumentative best here. So what does it mean? What is this baptizing on behalf of the dead stuff? There's two possible explanations that the scholars give. I prefer the first, though the second one is also plausible. Each are plausible, but I prefer the first. Here's the first one. Some people in, in the church at Corinth were going through the ritual of baptism on behalf of loved ones or relatives who had died before they got to hear the gospel, so they were not in Christ. So they are trying to baptize them in absentia so that they can be retroactively saved after they died physically. That was their thinking. And Paul says, but if there's no resurrection of Jesus, what good is, is, is it to baptize these dead people who are being baptized by proxy? It does them no good if there's no resurrection. Because the baptism is a picture of the resurrection. So... He's just pointing out that they have more logical foolishness. And then, second of all, the second explanation is 
why are you getting baptized if baptism is a picture of the resurrection, which it is, because by your no resurrection doctrine, you are being baptized into a dead person. What good is that? It makes absolutely no sense. So like I said, I, I think the first explanation is correct, but they both work. And both of them, Paul is pointing out their foolishness in the midst of this. And then, of course, verse 32 is, is just him quoting Ecclesiastes. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. If the world is all there is, then uh, just let it all hang out. Solomon said the same thing. He's saying, I can understand why you would have this attitude of licentiousness. If there really is no resurrection of the dead, why not? But he's also arguing and saying, but that's not what we're supposed to do. Um, and then verse 33 is really wise counsel. I mentioned this a long time ago in, in doing 1 Corinthians, but I'll mention it again. It's, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. So I've been, I, I'm, I am a little bit interested in true crime. So how many of you ever saw the movie uh, The Onion Field? Are you yeah. familiar with that? Okay, true story about Gregory Powell and Jimmy Smith uh, killed one cop, the other cop got away, and eventually they caught these guys. 1963 in Los Angeles. Joseph Wambaugh wrote the book. It was eventually made into a movie. And I've read the book a couple of times now. And uh, the book does a much better job than the movie, as books usually do, of explaining how Jimmy Smith kept telling himself over and over and over, I got to ditch this guy, Gregory Powell, because Gregory Powell was in charge of all of this. He was the leader of the gang. He, he, kept, say, he kept telling himself, I got to get rid of this guy. This guy's no good. I got to get away from this guy. This guy's going to get me into trouble. And that is exactly what happened. Jimmy, Jimmy had, he had spent a little bit of time in prison, but he had, he had the foundation and the community around him where he could have recovered and been okay. But instead he got involved with this guy, Gregory Powell, who was excellently portrayed by James Woods, by the way, in the movie. Um, and, and, and that was his downfall. He could not see his way clear to breaking away from the, the bad company. His morals were good, but they were corrupted by the bad company. And, and it's very easy for all of us to fall into that trap. So Paul says this a couple of times in his writings. And then verse 34 is, a, is a, what I call a culminating command. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. Would, you have got the wrong idea of what church is supposed to be. And he's been making that argument all the way through this book about how you have the wrong idea of what church is supposed to be. Uh, your, your Lord's suppers are completely chaotic and they're, and they're, um, they're offensive to God. Um, you, you've, you've got a, a sexual ethic that doesn't even come close to uh, a biblical sexual ethic. Uh, and, he, and he goes through all of these problems. And, and this is just his frustration coming out saying, you've got to quit with the drunkenness because that's also leading you down these dark paths and recognize what's happening. And then he says, at the end of 34, he says, and these things are to your shame. We're going to get into that in a second. 
But one of the other parts about this idea of them waking up from their drunken stupor is he's saying part, as part of the reason that's led you to this denial of the resurrection and this denial of the resurrection is causing two problems for you. You are figuring that since the world is all there is, you might as well sin and enjoy it and rely on grace to cover it through the cross. So we're back to this idea of Corinthian licentiousness again. Uh, grace, the proper response to grace is to serve, humbly serve, to recognize that we don't deserve it. But there are a lot of people whose response to grace is, well, I can just go on sinning because God's grace will cover it through Jesus Christ. That's the improper response. Paul writes that very clearly in Romans as well. But second of all, he says, all of this is causing non-believers to stumble at the name of Jesus because if he's not raised, well, then why would anybody seek to have life in him? So two big problems, licentiousness and you're causing other people to, to stumble. And then he says, this is to your shame. Now, I'm going to go off on a little rant here. I hope you can abide. <laughs> uh, I find it interesting. I, I've mentioned to you, I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of off reading Christian, I'm, I'm off of reading Christian authors. Um, occasionally I'll pick up one. I've maybe read two Christian books this year. I'm reading a lot more um, philosophy, social science, biographies, those kinds of things. A lot of it by um, uh, progressive leftists who don't want anything to do with God, but are also saying all of this postmodern theory that's beginning to bear fruit now is craziness and it's going to ruin us, which I, think, which I find absolutely fascinating. I'm not reading Christian, of course Christian authors are going to say that. I'm reading progressive leftists who are saying that. Okay. Anyway, but one of the reasons is because so many of our contemporary Christian authors now rush like mad in their books to make sure that if, to tell you that if you're sinning, there is absolutely no shame in that and you shouldn't feel guilty about it because shame and guilt are not from God. Shame and guilt are not from God. So my question is always, and I can never ask the author directly, I would love to do that, but my question is always, how do you know it's not from God? How do you know it's not from God? And second of all, what do we do with this verse? <laughs> Paul uses the word shame. So I, I actually think I found a more uh, non-biblical pragmatic answer. By the way, I, I think that shame and guilt in their proper places are good things. If we don't feel those things, we don't repent. We don't think about what we need, which is Jesus crucified. Now, I understand if we're using shame and guilt as weapons in an earthly, horizontal way, I can understand why that's a problem. But um, I just finished a fascinating book uh, by, a, she's a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. Her name is Anna Lemke. Again, not a Christian book, not a Christian. Uh, the title of the book, see if this connects with anybody, is Dopamine Nation. And she, I've been, I, I like reading books about how the brain works too. And she lays it all out, dopamine. And then 
the book after that that I read, and I'm just finishing now, is called The Hacking of the, uh, of, uh, uh, the, the Hacking of the American Mind, about how corporations have got us confusing um, pleasure with contentment, and, and that is screwing us up, and it's a problem. It's a long explanation for it, which I won't get into now, but it's really helpful also to understand what's going on with dopamine and the difference between dopamine and serotonin. Anyway, in this woman's book on dopamine nation, she, she makes the same argument. She says, uh, listen, uh, when we use shame to bully people, I can get on board with how that's a problem. She says, but there's also something called pro-social shame. Pro-social shame is what occurs when somebody knows that they've done something wrong and they're ashamed of it, as they should be, but they're in a community that calls out the problem that they did. They're willing to call it out, but they're also the community is restorative, not rejecting. So the community isn't saying, you're out, <laughs> and using the shame to say you're out. The community is saying, what you did is wrong, and it's appropriate that you have shame, but you're still a part of this community, and we love you, and we want to restore you. Now, anybody want to guess what that sounds like in terms of first century writings? <laughs> That's exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. Now, he didn't know it. Paul's not walking around going, I'm going to write a book on pro-social shame. That's not what he's doing. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what he's doing. He keeps calling the Corinthians out in what they were doing wrong, their sin. But at the same time, he keeps reminding them, you are saints. You are in Christ. You, you are part of this faith community. Now start acting like it. So he's restorative. And even in 2 uh, Corinthians, when you know in 1 Corinthians 5, he takes on the, uh, the guy that's sleeping with his stepmother, right? Remember that? In 2 Corinthians, he goes to the Corinthians and he says, okay, thank you. You finally called him out on that, but now you're going too far. You, now you need to restore him. You need to forgive him and restore him. That's what he's going to say in 2 Corinthians. So Paul is practicing this pro-social shame. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, that's an excellent addition, good call. That's exactly what Paul is trying to do here. Paul's not really interested in, in, in worldly sorrow. He's only interested in godly sorrow because he knows that's the one that, will, that is restorative and repentant. So, really good call. Yeah. Um, all right, rant is over. Everybody okay with the rant? All right. Cool. All right, verses 35 through 41. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. 
I'm going to wrestle with that a little bit. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star, for star differs from star in glory. So interestingly, what's happening here now is that there are some Corinthians who maybe believe in the resurrection, but they're afraid of it, but don't like it. They don't like the idea of it. Here's why. They like their current body. They think their current body is the best that there is. And they don't want to take a chance on having a different kind of body that they're not going to like in heaven. So Paul argues against this notion. And again, he goes, he's got the sun, moon, and star things going at the end, but the, uh, the primary argument is, once again, an agrarian argument. He says, don't you understand that what is harvested is better than what is planted? And what is planted has to die first before you can have a harvest. So would you rather eat a dried corn kernel or, or a big cob of corn with butter and salt on it? <laughs> Which would you rather eat? That's, what he's, that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, you don't seem to understand that what we're going to have up in heaven is going to be way better. Okay? So, what's harvested is better than what's planted. What is planted must first die, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus did. Okay? And, and then, he, he's saying, whatever we have here, it's going to be infinitely, literally, infinitely better in heaven. Um, I've said this before. I, I'm kind of hoping for Brad Pitt's body in heaven. I think that would be kind of cool. Um, now, there's a couple other things here, and I wanted to wrestle with this a little bit. He uses this idea of, of uh, human flesh and animal flesh, right? Okay, so is he arguing, or even, or is he, is he insinuating that there are going to be animals in heaven in the New Jerusalem? Is that what he's doing, or is he just using that as an example of how there's two different kinds of flesh? There's an earthly flesh and there's a heavenly flesh. Which is it? I'm telling you, people have puzzled over this for a long time. A long time. So, uh, and, I, and I wrestle with this. Jackie and I are dog people. Anybody, any dog people in here? Yeah, okay. We, we, for most of our 35 years being married, we've had, I don't know that we've ever had just one dog. We've always had two, and most of the time it's been three. And we have three right now. Although we're getting close to having two, unfortunately. Um, three and a half years ago, <laughs> in the same month, Tom Schrader passed away. And uh, probably the most popular dog our family has ever had, a, a Weimaraner named Moose, passed away. It was kind of a double whammy. Anyway, so my question is, am I going to see Moose in heaven? You know? I wish I knew. I wish I could answer this. I can't answer it definitively. However, if you've ever heard of Randy Alcorn, anybody ever heard of him? The author Randy Alcorn? He's written a number of books. He is a Christian author. Um, he doesn't talk about how shame and guilt are not from God, so read his books. Um, anyway, he wrote a book about heaven 
cleverly titled Heaven. <laughs> it's 700 pages long, but it's really good and really accessible. <clears throat> it's not written in an academic way. Uh, he makes a pretty strong argument that there are going to be animals in heaven. And the reason he does is he says they were part of their created order. So that's interesting. I'm not, I'm not banking on it. I'm not betting on it. Okay. But I, I, when I get to heaven, I, the first question I'm going to say is, where's Nebuchadnezzar? I want to have a cup of coffee with him because I believe he'll be there. And my second question is, are there any animals up here? Because if there are, I'm going to go look, look for all the dogs that we've had to put to sleep. You know. Um, and then number two, what Paul is also getting at here, although this is an overlay of a contemporary problem, I understand that, but he is getting at this. Our body is not a construction to be trifled with. Our body is not a construction to be trifled with. The bodies that God has given us are a glorious reflection of his love and grace for us. And to do what contemporaries are doing to their bodies right now, dare I say it, is blasphemy. We were just having this conversation about, um, I just watched, y'all are going to think all I do is watch TV and read books. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, I just watched the, the Netflix documentary. It was only two episodes on um, Manti Teo. I didn't even know who the guy was until the thing popped up on my feed. And I like documentaries. So Netflix is always showing me all the new documentaries. Anyway, he's that uh, Notre Dame football player who uh, got catfished. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, he got catfished by a transgender person. And it's just it was just interesting to me how Netflix handled the whole documentary and really Manti Teo became the villain and, and the guy that catfished him kind of really was elevated and exalted in, in, the, in the midst of all of that. It was fascinating to me. I was just sitting there going, this guy ruined Teo's life and his family. I mean, just ruined them. And he's off having a great time, <laughs> you know, just sort of exalting in his Netflix documentary, you know. I'm sorry, this woman... I didn't want to, I don't want to dead name them. So. And then chapter 15, verses 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul simply continues his logical argument that whatever we have here on earth is inferior to what God has for us in the resurrection, and that's good news. Uh, and that, that brings up this interesting point that uh, Martin Luther made in his writings about seeing the Bible in four epics and defining those four epics by our nature. Has anybody heard this before? So the first epic is just Genesis 1 and 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3. So that ep in that epic, Luther says this, we are not sinful, but we are capable of sinning. 
Our nature is not sinful, not yet sinful, but we are capable of sinning. Then Genesis 3 happens. And from Genesis 3 until the death and resurrection of Christ, so that's the second epic. It's much longer than the first epic. Um, He writes that our nature is sinful and we are utterly incapable of not sinning. And I, and I know you might say, well, wait a minute, we had the law. The, the purpose of the law wasn't to keep you from sinning, primarily. Primarily, the purpose of the law was to show you that you are a sinner and you need God. Because you can't keep it all. So anyway, he says in epic number two, uh, we, we are sinful in our nature and we are utterly incapable of not sinning. Epic number three is from the resurrection until uh, Revelation 20. The end of Revelation 20, so that's a longer epic as well. During that epic, we, our nature is utterly sinful, but we are capable of not sinning by the power of the resurrection and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So now we have this ability to not sin. Um, and we'll look at that even more in depth uh, towards the end when we look at Romans chapter 7 tonight. Um, and then epic number four begins at the, new Jer- the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the coming of the new Jerusalem, and those who are dead in Christ waking up and being with Christ, those who are in Christ uh, but still alive, being transformed in the blink of an eye, and now we're with Jesus in the new Jerusalem. And uh, Luther says, we are no, our nature is no longer sinful, and we are no longer capable of sin because there is none of that in the New Jerusalem, we're told. And that's, that's going to be the longest epic because then that is eternity. Okay? So, Paul is saying that, that what we're, the epic we're in the midst of is a problem and we need salvation from that. That salvation comes from the cross and resurrection of Christ and that is good news and what is coming after this is better than what we have now. What we have here on earth is inferior to what God has for us in the resurrection. Tom used to say this all the time. I'm sure he stole it from somebody else. He, he, would, he would admit that he did, stole it. He, he heard it from somebody else first. Um, for the Christian, this earth, this world, is the closest we'll ever get to hell. And for the non-Christian, this world is the closest they'll ever get to heaven interesting the relative nature of that so then 45 through 49 thus it is written the first man Adam became a living being the last Adam Jesus became a life-giving spirit but it is not the spiritual that is first but the natural and then the spiritual the first man was from earth a man of dust the second man is from heaven as was the man of, the, of, of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here you go. We were created in the image of God, and that's glorious. But we were also created from dust. That means that we have limits that God does not have. But then Jesus came along, and through his resurrection, he redeems our Adamic body for an eternal spiritual body when the end comes. And again, that is good news. So here you go. 
We've been talking for two weeks now about how 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Yes, that's good. Yay. Okay. But it's also about eschatology. There's eschatology in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you ever want to talk about eschatology and somebody only wants to go to Revelation, you need to tell them there's other eschatology in the Bible. And one of the places is in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, what happens at the end? So end times theology. And so Paul is again saying Christ is necessary for eternal life and we can either have just the natural body, which by the way is still eternal, it just is tormented in hell forever, or we can have a resurrected body in the new Jerusalem heaven. And then he begins to wrap up, 50 through 55. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So 50 seems like a pretty obvious conclusion to me. Flesh and blood is not going to inherit the kingdom of God because it's sinful. Okay? But then 50 through, uh, 51 through 55 is written like a little praise song. Paul does that in his writings occasionally. He writes in a, in a praise song way, almost like, a psalm. And so Paul takes all of this teaching up to this point and he crystallizes it by saying, the dead in Christ shall be resurrected with new, imperishable, eternal bodies. And that truth leads to the beautiful conclusion that death loses. So death will be defeated. That's good news. Right? It's my favorite. I'm a bumper sticker guy. I think I've told you some of this before. Um, if you're, I'm sorry to offend you if you're one of these. If you're somebody that has like 15 or 20 bumper stickers on the back of your car, I'm not that interested. Uh, the reason is because I, I, I don't feel like you can make up your mind what you really believe and stand for. <laughs> okay. But if you have one bumper sticker, I'm really interested because you just ruined a $40,000 paint job. And, and for, to do that for one bumper sticker, I want to know what that bumper sticker says. Okay. Anyway, uh, in the 90s, I was uh, at Grand Canyon University. I was walking through the parking lot, and I'd never seen this bumper sticker before, never seen it uh, since. And the bumper sticker said this, I can predict the future, dot, dot, dot. God wins. <laughs> That's it. It's like, yeah, I like that. That's pretty good. Okay. One more thing here to clear up. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes, there will be many in Christ who are still alive. True. They have not yet fallen asleep, died. But all who are in Christ, the dead and the living, in a twinkling of an eye, shall be given new bodies for their life in the new Jerusalem. Then 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, in that issue, this is not the only time where, where Paul says the power of sin is in the law. He says that in Romans, too. So again, he's pointing out that <clears throat> what the law does is it just points out our nature. Obviously, with the elaborate sacrificial system, which we're reading through on Tuesday mornings right now, it's fascinating. With the elaborate sacrificial system that the Mosaic Law had set up, it was clear that it was never expected that anybody was going to keep the law, you know. So that was never the expectation. Um, but rather, the law points out how sinful we are. And in fact, at times, the law can also give us a desire to sin. Okay, I'm sure you've walked by a, a, a sign that says wet paint. And there's all kinds of fingerprints in it. <laughs> You know, it's just like, you just got to touch it. Um, I looked for it on the way back from Iowa this time because I came back through uh, Star Valley and, and Payson and all that. Uh, there, there was a sign, there's a sign outside of Payson that says no, used to be, years ago, I didn't see it this time. There's a sign that said no shooting and it's riddled with bullet holes. Ha, 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 ha. Okay, so, but you know, you get a memo at work and, and it says you can't do this anymore and you're like, ah, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I mean, that's just our nature, you know. Uh, but then he also says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I got to go to Romans. I just got to go there. So Romans 7, if you want to go there. For whatever reason, this, this passage has just always fascinated me. Um, wh one thing that I found interesting is for a while there were people actually arguing that Paul was writing about his life before Jesus because after he came to Jesus Paul never sinned okay. no <laughs> it just doesn't wash okay anyway he writes and he's writing about the law and he's, he's making this argument about how in the law there is sin I mean he writes that in Romans in the law there is sin and then he writes, what he does in chapter 7, uh, starting verse 13, what he, what he does is he starts to wrestle with and talk about the tension that comes with the law and the spirit and with the flesh and the, and the spirit and with the flesh and the law. So he says, did that which was, is good, he's saying the law is good. He's not saying the law is bad. He's saying, did that which is good then bring death to be? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. He's saying the law is good. It's just that you can't find redemption in it. Redemption only comes from God. But death comes through this. De uh, death, sin uses the law to, to bring death about in us. So he says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody ever felt like that? Okay. Now if I do what I do, do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out in and of my flesh, he's saying. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You ever felt like that? You want to do what's right, but you just, you could, you know. Here you go. It's the angel and the demon, one on each shoulder. Okay? For I delight in the law of the Lord, in my inner being. But I see in my members, my flesh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. And then here it is. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the same thing he writes in first, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's the same thing. By the way, again, I, just, I find this fascinating. There are so many stories that use the second half of uh, Romans 13 as sort of the, the foundation of their narrative about good and evil, stories about good and evil wrestling with each other. Probably the most famous is Robert Louis Stevenson's little novella, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody read it? I read it. Okay, it's interesting to me. So he grew up as a Lutheran minister's son. Robert Louis Stevenson did. And at one point in the novella, he quotes Romans 7. He's quoting Romans 7 to talk about this Jekyll and Hyde problem. He's writing, Dr. he wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as an allegory about Romans chapter 7. And you can look at all kinds of contemporary stories as well that have sort of the same motif, the same theme. Hyde wins at the end. What? Hyde wins. What's that? Hyde wins over Jekyll. He, the evil overtakes him. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, dare I, dare I mention that the whole story of, uh, you know, it, the Dexter novels yeah. with the dark passenger? It's the same thing. The Dexter's constantly wrestling with, I know what's good and I want to be good and I want to do what's good, but I have this dark passenger who takes over my persona and I can't help myself. Yes. It's, it's knowing what's right and just having this weird inability not to be able to do it. And, and Paul says we, we wrestle with this even as believers. Paul wrestled with it. So, last verse, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we wrap up verse 15 and head into the closing chapter next week and 58 is a logical conclusion to all this resurrection teaching we will live a life of steadfast faith we have the confidence that our labor and our fruit and our faith is not in vain and our lives reflect our lives will reflect several of the core values at redemption church like all of life is all for jesus 
we do God's work God's way and life is lived naturally supernatural that's three of the seven core values right there that I think are pretty obvious in the midst of uh, that verse and, and, and all of chapter 15 so when we gather again next week we're going to uh, we're going to wrap up with chapter 16, maybe have a little preview of 2 Corinthians. Uh, and then, um, yeah, that's what we'll be doing other than the 21st when Marcus Doe is here. And, and I'm going to interview him and let him talk about We Reconcile. So uh, let me pray. We'll be out of here. I'll see you Sunday. Our, our gracious and holy God, thank you for uh, your word and its truth. And thank you for instructing us through it. And thanking, thank you for making it so relevant. How everywhere we look in scripture, we can just see ourselves and have a better understanding, not only of who you are, but who we are and our need for you. So God, give us the courage to lean into you all the time. Fill us with your spirit. Let us welcome your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.